I know that uh, in Norway, and you're going to have to maybe explain that to us, uh, to be eligible for disability support payments through the government, you're required to participate in a rehab program? Yes. Well, officially, no. <laughs> and the guidelines, they recommend that patients attend a rehab facility. And it's actually called a work-related rehab facility. And in my case, my doctor have always agreed with me that I'm not well enough to go to one of these rehab centers. I mean, I would survive, but it's geared towards those who are pretty mild and who can walk a little, who can socialize every day without, you know, collapsing. <laughs> and so we've always agreed that I'm not well enough. And not only I would not only would I not benefit, uh, I would most likely get worse, at least temporarily. But a lot of people also get worse permanently. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. Twenty-three percent of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm podcast host Scott Simpson, and in this episode of Medical Air Interviews, I chat with Norwegian Andrea Videller. I was surprised to find out that the Norwegian healthcare system makes some patients sicker sometimes permanently. Andrea is quite ill and very disabled. She is only well enough to leave her house about once a month. But Andrea has a Hobson's choice. Live at a workplace rehab for a month or try to live without income at all. Medical error takes many forms. A misunderstanding of what an illness is, has, and does cause harm and death. In Norway, bureaucrats have designed a healthcare system that basically requires sick and disabled patients to live at an institution that is designed to return them to work or try to live without any income. But for some sick and disabled patients, like Andrea, just traveling to the rehab center and its environment and its activities will make them sicker and sometimes permanently sicker. 
That leaves Andrea with a dilemma. Get sicker, perhaps permanently, in order to receive disability support to live on, or remain less sick but try to live without any income. If you are experiencing the repercussions of medical error, or are living with a chronic illness, or faced with LGBT issues, or any of life's other challenges, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Andrea and a note of caution that some people may be triggered by Andrea's experience with the healthcare system. So, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? So, I grew up out right outside Oslo, um, a small neighborhood, very safe and very, uh, you know, it's, um, I'm born in 1987, so this was the early 90s and it's just I think looking back it's like a lot from my generation I'm a millennial it's uh, almost absurdly idyllic you know in retrospect Um, so I had a very nice childhood I was not very athletic but uh, still very active like we would go hiking and swimming and ride our bikes and I would play football and uh so i'm a single child uh or a lonely child uh but my parents are divorced so i have five now uh half siblings so but it was a very uh functional divorce and uh, so it's always been a very like everyone's a family it's, it's always been a very uh, good environment to grow up in so yeah and um and how were you in school and what did you think of school i loved school yeah i was an excellent student i loved school i loved reading i would always read like three books at a time just to make sure there were no gaps without a book that was my my worst nightmare uh my entire entire childhood and adolescence was like going so much of the day without a book was like the biggest horror I could imagine. <laughs> and, and Andrea, why was that such a big horror? No, just because I loved reading. Oh. Or I still do. It's just it's a struggle now. So, but I just, uh, that was, um, yeah, I would go to school, loved school, had a very, I went to great schools in general, great teachers, great friends, uh, several of my friends. Uh, I've been with since I was like six years old Uh, and uh, so I'd go to school and then I would come home and I would read (laughs) and read and read and read and read so yeah Um, what kind of topics and subjects were you reading about well mostly fiction I think uh, yeah by the time by the time I was like 10, 11, I'd already read like every single book in Norwegian that my mother had uh, in the house. So I had to start reading in English because I'd run out. <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah, no, mostly fiction and a lot of like sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, mostly, I think, in the beginning because the books are longer and they come in very big series of like 10 books of a thousand pages each, uh, which appealed to me, <laughs> which it meant I didn't have to run out of books for a long time to come. So uh, yeah, that was a big, big part of my life uh, up until I started getting ill. Okay, so tell me about that. How old were you and what happened? So I didn't get diagnosed with ME or my myalgic encephalomyelitis until I was uh, until 2016. But in 2006, uh, at 19, I got an infection and another infection and another one, and over the course of two months. Um, yeah, I had those three infections, and after that, like, I'd never really been ill before. Up until the age of 19, I'd never really had any major illnesses or anything. I, you know, had normal colds, but I'd, I don't think I'd been away from school a single day in my entire life. And then, then over those two months, when I was 19, I had three infections, three infections, and after, I remember I tried to go back to the gym to go to a spinning class and I couldn't even finish the first 15 minutes. I couldn't finish the warm up um, because my lung capacity uh, was reduced by 50%. So that's where it started. Like my lung capacity was so reduced and it got, it, it improved slowly over the next year or so. Uh, but by then I was, starting to have some real like issues with my stomach a lot of stomach aches and pains and it took like two years to figure out that I developed lactose intolerance which is pretty uncommon in Scandinavia um, so probably a result from all the antibiotics and everything and so I started to eat you know lactose free and that improved but by then my esophagus was inflamed and i had an ulcer and i figured that out but by then i had developed asthma and um, i'd gone off to study at university in another city and so it seemed like every year there was something new i deal with one problem and another popped up and there was a new infection, a new virus, a new something. And we'd figure it out and I'd adjust uh, my diet or my activity or whatever. But there was always something. And every semester I would be more tired, more exhausted. And I would crash really hard every vacation. But I mean, I was, but I was still studying full time. I was still doing a lot of volunteer work. I was still working part-time and working out um, so it's most of the time I did really well and I was having a blast I loved being a student and going to university and partying and but then the rest of the time I was you know struggling and something was wrong and I couldn't figure out what it was and it just kept coming back each semester 
So during this so, uh, period of time, uh, did you have any uh, sections in there where you were totally healthy, totally recovered, be able to do anything you wanted to physically? I'd say yes. So this is why I don't actually think I had ME at the time. Uh, something was obviously wrong, uh, but I had periods of time where I was, I mean, I would, I was working out eight times a week and like going running in the morning and doing strength training in the afternoon and school in between and work after. And so there were definitely periods that would, that were totally fine, although they were few and far in between. Uh, I did lead a completely normal life. I just, I was tired a lot of the time and it kept getting worse and I, um, yeah, there was always something. And I think by the end of 2010, I was really struggling. And the spring of 2011, I barely managed to do my coursework. But then I went, uh, then I went to Brazil for a year to study. And that year in the warm climate with uh, reduced, reduced the workload and just like all the afternoons spent on the beach, it did wonders. Admittedly, I started the year by having to remove my appendix, but it, that year in the sun really helped. And I came back to Trondheim where I was studying in 2012, feeling really good. And I think that fall, the fall of 2012, I was, that's the best shape I've been in in my life. I was really well trained. I was re doing really well at school. Um, this was my post-grad years. And uh, I was doing a lot of volunteering at the student society and working and feeling, it was amazing. But it lasted about 12 months. And then in 2013, I started struggling and I finally realized that I wasn't helping. I mean, I, there was obviously health issues, but I wasn't helping by, like I kept trying to push through and do more and just say yes to more things to make it happen. And so I finally started to realize I needed to slow down. But as I think a lot of people will recognize, it's one thing to understand that you have to slow down, but actually doing it is a lot harder. So, so I've already committed. Yeah. Maybe unpack that a little bit because it really sounds like um, you're a fairly disciplined person. You had uh, set high goals for yourself. Um, you're a pretty high achiever. And so your habit, it sounds like, well, when things got tough, you would just try harder and that's how you would succeed. Absolutely. I would try harder and I would actually, if, when I, whenever I was struggling, I would take on more things. Yes, I think as, uh, as you all know, like when you're starting something new, you have a lot of enthusiasm and it's uh, adrenaline and it's fun and you can, you can get so far on that initial enthusiasm. So I started to use that as a lifeline. So whenever I was struggling and really exhausted and not managing, I would start something new. 
because then I would get that boost of enthusiasm and motivation and that would like get me a little bit further. So uh, I definitely had a lot on my plate and but I also had a lot of fun. I mean I loved I loved being busy. Like I I loved being all over the place and having a lot of responsibility and and having a say at important meetings and and doing high quality work um, at school and but it was uh, but I was I was spinning plates so it was becoming impossible to keep up um, so um, yeah and I was so I started to sort of slow down yeah, yeah. Andrea um, I just wanna discern the nuances of what you're experiencing at that time. So uh, you're taking on more and more responsibility and you're enjoying the things that you'd like to do. And at the same time, your physical energy envelope is shrinking. Absolutely. But I guess this, ha this wasn't really a new thing because that was the way it had been for, yeah, for the last seven years, right? Uh, it's just now, I guess it didn't, it didn't end whenever the summer vacation came along. Because before I would usually crash at the be beginning of the vacation and then I would like recover over the next two months and then when the semester started, I would be fine. So, so coming back in the fall in 2013, I wasn't recovered. I was still exhausted. For uh, for you, what is a crash? For the people who are maybe even not familiar with that term for people who are living with a chronic illness, what was sure. a crash experience for you? Well, in those days, it wasn't, I think a crash now uh, with Emmy is, uh, very different uh, because now I get a lot of post-exertional malaise and pain and migraines and but up until that point crashes were usually just I guess burnout I was I would be exhausted and and lose uh, motivation and just sit around for a few weeks maybe get an infection something and then I, as like, then I would slowly recover, rest up, and it would be okay. So up until that point, that was what I thought of as a crash. It, but it, that definition has definitely changed um, later. But in 2013, uh, in September, I think I went for my usual morning run, and I got about 500 meters, and I just my body stopped working. And I crawled home, and that afternoon I had my first migraine. And it lasted five days, and it's to this day it's the worst migraine I've ever had. And that was my first like ME-like crash. I was paralyzed for five days in so much pain is like there was n nothing else existed except the pain so that was that's what i consider like the start of what 
later became ME, I think. So that must have been very frightening to, you know, go out for a run, feeling A-okay, and then feeling so sick 500 meters into it, barely able to get home, and then to experience multiple days of incredible migraine pain, which you had not experienced before. So what were you doing in terms of seeking health care? You're right. It was extremely scary, especially the run and just feeling my body just I didn't collapse. I didn't, it just, I couldn't take another step. Just, I, and it was really frightening. I'd never experienced anything like it. I mean, I'd gotten really tired and had runs I didn't complete, whatever, but I'd never experienced like my body just completely shutting down like that. Um, During the migraine, I just, I, I didn't really think about anything except the pain. And then when I recovered, I felt totally fine. So I sort of forgot about it. And it's weird, but when you're not aware that something, I don't know, it was, I was maybe so relieved to feel okay, but I was just so focused on getting back to my everyday life that I sort of almost, uh, yeah, I pushed it back. But then it happened again. Another month or so later, when the semester was getting to a close, I had another one. And then I went to the doctor. So I realized that this is not, not good and not normal. And I won't be able to finish all my courses this semester. So I needed a doctor's note. And, but I mean, my doctor and I, we sort of agreed that it was probably stress and overwork and, um, I got a note from her and I, I went back and I sort of scraped together uh, my, the, like my, my projects and classes. And, and um, then I moved back to Oslo to write my thesis. And there was a lot of stuff going on. I was working, I was moving, I was starting a design studio with some friends because, you know, why not do more? And by the time I settled down to focus on my thesis, I collapsed. And uh, yeah, and that was the first time I really, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't open my computer in the morning. I couldn't do anything. And it took me a year. And so how come come you couldn't open your computer? What was stopping you? At that point, it was exhaustion. I think both physical and cognitive. At that time, I was pretty sure I was burned out. Um, It made sense to me. I'd had a lot to do and and I'd heard of others who were burned out and... um, So you go with that diagnosis, hey, I'm burned out. I just need to rest and I'll I'll be recovered and back to my usual self. And to be fair, it... I did improve a lot the next in the next year and I went back uh, to finish my master's project and I did I scraped it together I may I maybe in 25% of the time I was expected to use but I did it and I was thinking like hey great I'm now I'm really on my way to recovery I'm doing everything right um, 
I was sleeping again. I met my current partner at that time. So everything was really looking up and I was like, okay, yeah, it was definitely burnout. I'm improving. I'm doing great. Uh, and I think this is very recognizable for a lot of people because I'd been so low the year before. The fact that I managed to finish my my thesis, even if it was at like 25%, felt like being completely well. Like that felt like enough. And I mean, obviously it wasn't, but that's how it felt just compared to the despair of the earlier year so I did that and I was thinking like yeah everything is going up everything is gonna be fine I'm just gonna now I'm gonna go back to work and I'm gonna like exercise more and I'm gonna like slowly build up and it's all gonna be fine and it didn't I went back to work it lasted three weeks and it was over and I went to my doctor and I and I said like this time this time I'm not getting better. I I'm not. Last year I I slowly got better, but now it's it's not getting better. And that's uh, so in 2016 I think he said, well, have you considered that you might have chronic fatigue syndrome? And I hadn't really done that, but we started to look at that. And at the same time, I went to the chiropractor because I was very locked up between my shoulder blades and I had a severe immunological reaction to that adjustment. Oh, tell me more about that. I was very locked up between my shoulder blades. And that's from a lot of things, probably from a lot of studying, sitting hunched over, but also a lot of stress. And, and, and I'd had some trouble with my breathing patterns. Uh, it's like a leftover from uh, when I had asthma. And it, it all just sort of built up and it was getting really painful. So I went to this really great chiropractor. He's actually really good. And he warned me that this is pretty, this is very locked up. So you'll probably have a reaction. Most people have a reaction the first time they come. It lasts two to three days. And, um, but it'll pass. And, uh, and so we did the adjustment and I got really sick. And I was actually sick for almost two months. And what sort of symptoms? Uh, Flu-like. Very flu-like, and the my back was extremely painful, and it got swollen. Like my entire my entire back was swollen and red, and I would lie like in bed at night screaming because it was so painful. And my partner would put ice on my back to calm it down, and 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 um, and it as the pain calmed down, like the flu-like feeling stuck with me. So for yeah, for almost two months, I was feeling really, really sick. And what and, was your chiropractor saying about this? Well, after the first, uh, what, after the first reaction, he sent me straight to the doctor. She was like, "I'm not touching you until a doctor has looked at this and said it's okay." And a doctor looked at it and was like, "I don't see anything." <laughs> so. Um, I went back and gradually, actually the chiropractor he helped 
the issues that he'd started on, he could gradually uh, improve. And to this day, it's a lot better. But the flu-like uh, feeling stuck. And from that point, it was pretty clear that I had ME. Because by it was sort of ironic, really, that my doctor had started me saying, like, I think we should consider CFS. But by the time we finished the um, evaluation, I definitely had ME. Uh, which is like in Norway at least considered sort of two separate uh, things. Okay. Or it's uh, ME. So, and how uh, are they categorized differently? What makes chronic fatigue syndrome different from ME in Norway? Well, I think um, chronic fatigue syndrome is used to describe a lot of things based around chronic fatigue, uh, and it's chronic fatigue without any other explanation. Almost the same as ME, it's just that to get an ME diagnosis, you need to fulfill the Canada criteria. Uh, so it's a lot more than just fatigue. It's post-exertional malaise, it's pain, it's sleep issues, it's, yeah. So it's a more specific uh, diagnosis. Okay. So what was it, uh, how did it feel to get that diagnosis? Well, I mean, in a way I already knew it was true. You know, it's, um, I'm resourceful and I'm a, a nerd. So the first thing I did when this came up was read all about it. And so I already knew. It was, to me, it made perfect sense. And I, I mean, I could check every symptom. So it was uh, pretty clear to me. So getting the diagnosis from the specialist was mostly a relief just to get it done. Um, but then, of course, it's, and at that time, I think my doctor said, well, most people, not many get totally well, but most people, will improve enough to like get back to a normal life within five to seven years. So it's like, okay, that makes sense. I like that's, and I think actually as a starting point, that's, that's not a bad place to start. If you're gonna start with you'll never get well, that's not, I'm not sure that's helpful. You need some time to sort of <laughs> get into it. And I mean, some people do improve enough to get back to at least the partial like part-time work so so uh, it sounds like there uh, wasn't any attempt to label your symptoms as being purely psychological that there was uh, an acknowledgement that there was something you know physically wrong with you well i don't think anyone ever said anything one degree or the other. I mean, I, I'd already gone to a psychologist uh, because I had been burned out or at least believed I was. So I'd already been down that road. So I was sort of already um, processed through that part of the system. And so everyone, like every doctor I spoke to would be like, oh yeah, but the psychologist doesn't think there's anything psychologically wrong with you. So that's fine. Well, you know, most doctors don't really know a lot about 
uh, ME or CSS. And I think, and to be honest, there's not a lot to know. So I think they just sort of, they don't, but I was very lucky in that all the doctors that I had to do with in this regard just didn't pass judgment one way or the other. They like, yeah, you're obviously sick. We believe that you're actually trying to get better and you're not having any success doing it. Um, I, you're highly educated, you're articulate. Um, we believe you, it's probably like, we don't know what to do about it, but uh, yeah, I've been very lucky in that regard. Absolutely. Uh, now, I know that uh, in Norway, and you're gonna have to maybe explain that to us, uh, to be eligible for disability support payments through the government, you're required to participate in a rehab program? Yes, well, officially, no. <laughs> it's a um, uh, system from the national guidelines for, uh, for chronic fatigue syndrome and myalgic encephalomyelitis in Norway. And the guidelines, they recommend that patients attend a rehab facility. And it's actually called a work-related rehab facility. Uh, because in most instances, the goal is to get you closer to be able to work or to work more. And um, this is something that's available to most people with chronic disease and, and also um, people that have been in accidents or whatever, but for some reason or other need to learn to adapt to a new way of life. And so it's a recommendation uh, along with a management class. And I guess it's a requirement to offer us the rehab, uh, but legally they're not allowed to demand that you do anything that could make you worse. On paper, they can't make you do it. In reality, it's not that simple. Most of us start out going on a temporary uh, benefit, like an unemployment benefit, but it's geared towards those of us that are too ill to work. And it's something to be on while they figure out if you can get back to work or not, right? To be able to apply for permanent disability benefits, you have to check a long list of boxes. And those boxes are taken from the guideline and typically it's a uh, diagnosis by a specialist, preferably a secondhand opinion, a psychological ev evaluation. Well, for ME treatment is not really, there's no treatment. So it's, it's mostly rest. And, and then there's the management class and or the rehab, as well as the work assessment. There are several divisions of the work and pension department that evaluate these applications. It's the local offices that will that recommend that you apply. My caseworker, she's a really sweet and really helpful young lady, uh, or young lady, she's about my age. <laughs> and uh, and if my doctor told her that no, Andrea is not well enough to go to a rehab center she would probably be okay. Then if you're not well enough, we can't make you. So then I'll recommend you apply for a benefit or disability benefit. The application would then be sent to another division 
that would process it. Sometimes they accept whatever is in the application. I've heard that people, um, they have just the diagnosis and nothing else, and it still gets accepted. But mostly, if you don't check, if you haven't checked all the boxes, they automatically deny it. And then you can appeal. And most people uh, will have, uh, will win the appeal. It's just that the appeal will take six to 12 months. And during those six to 12 months, you're not eligible for any kind of benefit. So if you don't check all the boxes, and that means if you don't, haven't been to rehab before you apply, your application will most likely be denied and you can appeal and the appeal is quite likely to be successful. It's just that you'll be six to 12 months without any income. Wow. Yeah. So just so I'm clear here, so people that are very sick and disabled and they're wanting to transfer, needing to transfer from short-term disability to long-term permanent disability, uh, the typical response of the government is to deny the initial application and cut off payments during the process, during the appeal process. And most people succeed in the appeal process, but by that time, they may be out of food, out of home, out of medication. Yep. So in, in my case, and you have a pretty, the, the rules have been changed. So the temporary uh, benefits are pretty time limited. To begin with, it's hard to get everything done in the time frame they've set. And in my case, my doctor have always agreed with me that I'm not well enough to go to one of these rehab centers. I mean, I would survive, but it's geared towards those who are pretty mild and who can walk a little, who can socialize every day without, you know, collapsing. <laughs> and so we've always agreed that I'm not well enough. And not only I would not only would I not benefit, uh, I would most likely get worse, at least temporarily. But a lot of people also get worse permanently. And they do take a lot of care while you're there. They have soundproof rooms. It's all where, like the the best centers are really ME friendly as far as they can, but it's still, for most of us, just being away from home is too much, right? So even if you can stay in bed all day, even if like you still have to be around other people and there's still appointments and you have to eat like in the common room and it's just, I mean, just the travel there is three hours, it's too much for me. I will definitely survive it. It's just not ideal and it will almost definitely make me worse. So it might so be my, hard for healthy people to sort of understand how a three-hour car trip to the rehab center could knock you down. Absolutely. And I know some people uh, with ME don't struggle with this but I think most of us do and I'm not sure exactly why a car travel or bus travel or anything is so draining vibrating and there's sounds and and the, like visually it's very stimulating and I mean in the summer 
when I'm doing, I'm, I'm usually a lot milder in the summer. I can handle maybe two hours if I have a lot of painkillers beforehand and, and if I know there's at least a week until I have to do it again. Uh, but it, I do get really, really ill from it. I will, uh, it will trigger some pretty severe post-exertional malaise. So it's, it's not, it's not ideal, but I mean, the stay is four weeks, so I'll probably recover from that. I mean, so my doctor have always agreed that I should, that like, that won't be beneficial for me. And we've also thought that, you know, it's maybe better too to have it. Uh, like for some time I might need it more or when it will be appropriate. So like, let's not waste it on me now when I can't really benefit and I do, uh, I do manage my disease well and I've learned like all I need to know about pacing and etc. So I do really well on my own. So I don't feel like I need it and I don't, I don't think it will help me. So my dilemma is, do I go and risk getting worse, but then I will check that box and I will have the report that's, because that's the point is sort of the report that they write that gives them a better, like they can document the level of functioning you're actually at, right? They can observe you over four weeks and and that's very helpful when you apply for for disability. But so do I do that? Or do I not go and like not risk getting worse, but then I'm I definitely risk going twelve months without an income. And I'm very lucky and very fortunate in that I had or my mother had a disability insurance on me which increases my because I was a student when I get ill my my, uh, my benefits are pretty low it's the minimum amount but because of the insurance it's 50 percent higher and so I I'm actually able to save enough to make sure I have enough to live off for a year it's it's still not a very good situation to be in to be without an income for 12 months. And I mean, I'm not, my income is pretty low to begin with. So uh, it's not an ideal situation. And of course, for many people, that's not possible to save, right? Many people with ME especially, they don't have the ability to save anything. They're barely like surviving as it is. Some people have young children uh, and they might have a husband or wife who's also ill or who's also has a low income. So I mean, like legally, they can't make you do anything that will make you worse. But in reality, that's just what they're doing. That is a horrible choice. Do you <clears throat> participate in a month long rehab, and I'll put that in quotes, um, that's in all likelihood going to make you sicker and Potential, potentially permanently sicker in order to sort of get access to uh, benefits which you're really entitled to. Exactly. And so, I mean, some people have doctors that really understand the disease and can write really good reports and then they might be able to sort of sideline this or, but for me, I just moved back to where I grew up. I have a new doctor. She doesn't know me that well. So, and, and she doesn't really get ME. 
she's very like respectful and understanding, but she doesn't have a lot of experience with it. So it's hard for her to sort of evaluate this for me. She doesn't know me well enough, right? So, and I mean, I could take a chance that it'll work out, but. So in the context of medical error, it would seem that the rehab program for ME has an error in assuming that the program is going to rehab somebody with ME. Yes, or actually, like to be fair, I think it's very helpful to a lot of people with ME. If you have a mild um, form of the condition, or if you're if you you're very recently diagnosed it is very helpful to a lot of people because they will teach you a lot about pacing and about managing your illness in all different ways all the different kinds of ways and you do have like doctors and physiotherapists and everything under one roof and it i know a lot of people actually find it helpful and a lot of people with young children too do actually love uh, this chance to be away and recover for a few weeks. And I don't think actually anyone believes anymore that it will improve you, that you, that you will get better from it. I think uh, they, it's a chance to discover that you might have something different. I think mostly it's that the Department of Work and Pensions really need something to help them make the decision and they don't understand what they're asking so it's it's more that they're they're not fully comprehending what it's doing to us we can try to we try to tell our caseworkers but they're not the ones making decisions right they're just the front line and they're as frustrated as anyone else so like my caseworker she said like oh yeah i see here it says you haven't been because you're too ill but I'm, I just have to tell you, it will really help your case. I like it's up to you, but it, from experience, it will make your life a lot harder if you don't go. So, if you can't, you can't. But I'd really recommend it if you can at all manage it. Right. So uh, I think I now I understand the error in the Norwegian system, or at least in this little part of yeah. the system, and it's that the, like you say, the government doesn't understand ME, therefore they're not asking the right questions or they're not setting up a, an appropriate program for people with ME. Right. And that's where right. the error is in the system. Yeah, that's right. I think that's exactly it. And it's, yeah, it's frustrating. It's I, because I realized they do need some sort of evaluation or something to help them uh, judge like if you're actually ill or how ill you are and but I think this is a very very expensive way to not really accomplish what you're trying to accomplish I mean four weeks at a center like this it must cost so much and I think they might be better served by sending someone home to your home to interview you who wants a stranger in your house to evaluate you and judge you, but still it's, it would be better than four weeks 
I've talked to a number of folks in the UK and, and they have that system where the social worker will come to the uh, ill person's home to make an assessment. And it doesn't seem to work out too well in the UK. Now they may have different set of rules and recommendations and the way they're implementing that particular protocol. And maybe that's the problem as opposed to just visiting a sick person in their home. Yes, well, I, d I don't think that's a, an ideal solution. It's just, there has to be a better way, right? There has to be, or at least, I guess if, if ME was more, was better understood, then maybe you could have, uh, then maybe more centers could have uh, received people with ME, because now it's it's like there's, I don't know, maybe six or seven centers across the country that receive people or maybe it's more but it's a lot of them are not recommended by the ME association so yeah the way it's done now where you don't really have a choice and it's really there's only one way like there's only one size fits all uh, and I think like most of us know for people with ME it's doesn't work well. Yeah, it requires a big system change. So Andrea, um, how have you been managing yourself, your emotions, your thoughts during this period when, you know, you had so many hopes and dreams at working towards achieving them? And now you don't have those same hopes and dreams. So how do you how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, it's an up and down sort of <laughs> battle. Um, I mean, my, the, our family motto or my mother's motto rather has always been like, if it's, it won't help being angry about it, right? Or it won't help being like in a bad mood, which I think is true. It's not always helpful to see it that way, but um, that's what I, keep coming back to like okay this is the way it is and I'm angry about it and I'm sad about it and I'm really really hoping it won't last forever but while I'm here you know you just sort of have to make the best you can out of it right you have to adjust what I keep going back to every after every like bad period or after every breakdown or whatever is okay if this is the way it is forever and always like what do i want to do about it or not do about it but what do i want to do with my life given given the situation i'm in and so at least for the time being it's pretty impossible for me to work um i do try sometimes to do like small things i've done some translations online stuff like that but i mean it's it's i have some pretty significant cognitive issues so it it usually doesn't last long but i try to focus on managing my finances so that although i don't have a lot now maybe in the future i will have more room like just because my income's low is not a reason to sort of give up trying to save some of it right um, I do have a partner and we are building a life together. So that's, I mean, that's very, that's amazing actually that, uh, for, except for my health and the fact that I don't work, everything else is pretty much 
uh, as good as it gets, I think. My partner is amazing and we have a really great life together. And we've just, we bought a house now this fall. And I mean, we're looking to f towards the future and there's still a future, you know, right? It's not the one I thought I would have or the one I wanted necessarily, but there's a lot of good stuff in it. And I am very fortunate in so many ways. I mean, I've, I, I've been born and brought up in one of the richest, happiest countries on earth with a welfare system that's very generous compared to a lot of other places. I have um, a great family that have been very supportive and I don't think everyone understands what's going on maybe, but no one has doubted me or told me to get a grip except for my very aging grandmother who thinks the baby will probably solve everything. But that's, I mean, that's grandmother's for you. And uh, I have my friends who have also been very supportive. So I think I, you know, I, I keep trying to remind myself that I do actually have a lot going for me. And that, I mean, this all sucks, but it's, um, if you just don't think too much about it it's uh, the rest of it is pretty okay right and i think um, i'll find something to do <laughs> sometime yeah that sounds like you've got a certain level of acceptance of your new reality um but you've not given up hope of having some sort of meaning in your future buying a house represents hope planning future yeah definitely i've not given up hope i think even if i have this illness for the rest of my life and even if there's never any treatment that will help i'm mostly pretty stable i know that every summer my uh, level of functioning improves a lot so i'm still mostly housebound in the summer but i can leave the house maybe twice a week instead of once a month and uh, and I can be outside and I can maybe garden a little bit. So I know like, even if things are always a bit heavy in the winter, there's always like an improvement to look forward to. And I think that's maybe the best part of, of having this sort of relapsing and remitting kind of enemy is that even if, yeah, I know it will get worse, it will also always get better, which I think helps uh for the hope part my condition has become more and more steady and predictable and so i haven't given up hope completely that i that i will improve a little bit um i have so far just from pacing and and i mean it's not a lot but it's still you know it's in the going in the right direction we have adjusted and we want to well, hopefully we want to have a family. Well, so far we're not sure we'll manage uh, something to think about. And uh, and just so long as we sort of adjust for having to do it a little bit differently, <laughs> yeah, I think we'll be fine. Yeah, probably more support. So uh, if you improve in the summertime and you had the big recovery and improvement when you lived in Brazil for a year, what do you think that's about and how strongly do you have the urge to move to Brazil? 
<laughs> oh, that's it's pretty strong. Um, I think it. I think it's several things. I think it's the sunlight. Uh, I think it's the warmth uh, that makes. I think that improves circulation. I think that that reduces pain. It it aids recovery. So, uh, you know, you can even if yeah. You will recover faster and you can do a little bit more. And uh, I mean, it's not a huge difference, but it's, um, we went to Spain a couple of years ago for a couple of weeks. And I mean, I could walk to the nearby restaurants, right? Uh, we even managed to walk through the city center one day, even if we had to like take a coffee break every <laughs> 10 minutes. Um, so um, I think it's lots of things and it's, it, really does help and so what we uh, what we're discussing is um, my partner he runs his own company and uh, so he's building his company and he's a lot to do and but in a couple of years he'll probably sell it and at that time I'm probably through with all the disability stuff so what we're discussing is going for at least maybe a few months, uh, maybe longer. Southern Europe, probably like not too far, but and just um, do a what they call a mini retirement and see how that works. So I mean, if we're lucky, my, maybe I improve enough that I can work a little, right? And maybe that's motivation enough to stay there, or at least stay there in the winter months, or yeah, or do it every year or every other year or whatever. So it's it's something we think about, but I mean we do all have all our family and friends in Norway, so yeah, there's that to consider too. Mm -hmm. So. We've been chatting for about an hour now. How much, if at all, is this conversation going to take out of you? And how long will it take you to recover? Oh, it's hard to say. Like, I'm pretty drained now. I don't know if you can see it, but I'm barely keeping my eyes open. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, when you're doing something like this, adrenaline helps a lot. It keeps you afloat. I'll probably be pretty out of it. Uh, for tonight, but I did prepare. Uh, I have rested all the entire day and I've stayed in bed and, and uh, I do that mostly <laughs> this time of year anyway, but I've I've tried to avoid uh, doing too much stimulating activities like too much reading or too much anything. So I'll probably be pretty wired for a while now. <laughs> And then I'm guessing I'm not going to feel too good tomorrow. Well, thank you for making the sacrifice. I, I hope folks who hear your story, regardless if they live in Norway or not, um, will recognize maybe their own symptoms and history and maybe can seek out support as, as you have. My pleasure. Well, I mean, I think a lot of us have a confusing and like long, troubled roads before we get uh, to a diagnosis. So I think that's uh, something many recognize. Yeah, yeah. Would, wouldn't it be nice to have a really recognizable, well-diagnosed, well-treated disease? <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I mean, in a way, I'm also jealous of the people that have ME, but 
who got it overnight. I mean, that seems so clear cut, <laughs> but I don't think it's any better in the, at least I think it's, uh, it's probably harder to learn to deal with. With the slow onset, harder to deal with. No, no, the other way around. The slow onset sort of prepares you for that something's not right, right? Something's got to give. If it happens overnight, I would, I don't know how you deal with that. Yeah, it is more shocking, more traumatic to have sudden onset. That's true. I think so, yeah. Okay, thank you, Andrea. I want you to rest hard. I will, you too, Scott. Well, I have since come to learn that Norway is not the only country to require de facto some of its sick and disabled patients to live at a workplace rehab institution, even if that institution makes them more sick and disabled. This is what happens when the misunderstanding of an illness by physicians, basically a medical error, fails to stop bureaucrats from making sick people sicker. Thanks to Andrea Vedeler for sharing her healthcare experiences. If you're experiencing your own medical error or living with a chronic illness or having LGBT issues or any of life's other challenges, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. You can also support the podcast by becoming a subscriber on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other podcast platforms. Please also consider leaving a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron and get access to video versions of the podcast if you are a premium patron. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. Thank you for listening and be kind to yourself and others.